Now let's hope that I open up to the right passage of scripture this morning and I don't uh, open up to the wrong one. So in the year 1227, the Bible was divided into chapters. And in 1448, a Jewish rabbi went to the Old Testament of the Bible and he added verses. So now the Old Testament was in chapters and verses. Finally, in 1555, the New Testament was also given verse numbers as well. So, in 1560, the very first Bible was sold that had both chapter and verses. And that was the Geneva Bible in 1560. So, if you find yourselves on Jeopardy one day, or maybe if that game Trivial Pursuit is still around, maybe that information will come in handy. But it could come in handy this morning. Who knows? So the versification of the Bible has made it much easier for preachers and congregations, I suppose. But what of those who preached the word or taught the word prior to 1560? Maybe prior to 1227 when the chapters and the were broken up. What of those teachers? How would they have called your attention to the passage of Scripture or to the place in Scripture where they were going to preach? Let's say this morning Jesus, right? Let's say Jesus wanted to draw the crowd's attention to the text that I'm going to be preaching on, to to Psalm 22. How do you suppose that he would have got the attention of the people to let them know what psalm was being preached? Well, I'll tell you how. He would have spoken the first line of that psalm. Eli, Eli, lemma, shabbatne. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if you haven't done so yet, why don't you turn and open up your Bibles or your Bible apps to Psalm 22. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, then please, around this room, under the chairs, in many of those racks, there are copies of God's Word. Please grab one. Please write your name in it. says, you know, say, property of me. Write it in there. Take it home and start reading it. I mean, we put those copies there. We give them out for free because we know for a fact that the Bible tells us what, is the, what are the important things that God wants us to know about ourselves and about who we are. And the Bible tells us the important things that God wants us to know about the world and how the world works. And most importantly, the Bible tells us about God, who God is, how God works, what God does. And God wants us to know that. And it is so important that we know those things. So that's why we have those free copies for your taking. 
Now, if you doubt, if you say, I don't believe that that is God's word, then I would make a suggestion this morning that you go home, you put as much effort into reading the Bible as you do and in learning home improvement and cooking secrets from those shows on TV. Maybe get as interested in the stats of this book as, as you are in the, spats, the stats of a sports team or players. Maybe even give as much of your time over to the reading of this book that, we, that you do to Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and TikTok. I'll tell you what, all of that stuff is perishing. But the Word of God is lasting and it will benefit you forever. All right. So now that I've said that, let's move on to our text this morning. Psalm 22's heading is to the choir master. According to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. Now, as is the case in approximately half the Psalms, about 73 of them, they were Psalms that were written to the choir master. David wrote about number of songs to the choir master. And the reason was because the choir master was supposed to take that psalm and he was supposed to, to lead the congregation in the recitation or the singing of that song together. Now this is the only one of the 150 psalms that is written to the tune, the Doe of the Dawn. Now we don't know what that tune is, tune is but I suspect... It's a bit more somber than like Rocky Balboa's Eye of the Tiger or Mike Tyson's Road to Glory. I mean, when I, when I read The Doe of the Dawn, I, I picture myself as a little kid watching Bambi for the first time and seeing Bambi's mother. I mean, I find the thought of Psalm 22 being sung to a gentle tune. Very intriguing. Why? Because this is a very violent psalm. There's a lot of violence in this psalm being perpetrated upon the central character of that psalm. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let's just stop there. Unlike Psalm 34 or Psalm 51 or Psalm 59, unlike a dozen or more other psalms that we can clearly see the life of David in that psalm, there is nothing in Psalm 22 that's going to point to any event in David's life that we know about. There's nothing. I mean, a lot of psalms, Psalm 51, you can go and look at the story of him and Bathsheba and such, and you can look at the aftermath of that. I mean, there are different things like that. But in the case of Psalm 22, there is nothing in this psalm that actually points to the life of David which I also find very intriguing. Why? Because if you haven't noticed it yet already, 
Psalm 22 is written in the first person. There is somebody speaking these words. And if not David, then who is speaking those words? Well, in light of what most biblical scholars agree upon, I am going to preach this morning, and we are going to look at this morning, Psalm 22, from the perspective of it being a messianic psalm. What do I mean by a messianic psalm? It is a psalm that is prophetically pointing to Jesus, to his crucifixion, and to a time and events after that point. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 2, oh my God, I cry by day, but you are, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 22, being a messianic psalm that points to Jesus, makes verses 1 and 2 incomprehensible. I mean, we just can't even understand verses 1 and 2 in, in reality. Scripture, all throughout, repeatedly calls the Father God. And Scripture throughout calls the Son, calls Jesus God. And Scripture throughout calls the Holy Spirit God. And at the very same time, this same Scripture tells us that there is only one God. Now, we have given a name to that concept. We call it the Trinity. Even though the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, we have given a name to that truth that there are three persons in one God, which in itself is incomprehensible. We can't understand that. I mean, we have to face it. Our intellect is minuscule. It's ant size times I think the ants are smarter than we are. And we cannot understand then fully the grand reality of who God is. Now I said in a, a minute ago that, you know, the Bible tells us what God wants us to know about him, about ourselves, and about the world around us. But what I did not say, and you will never hear me say, is that we can understand every truth in this Bible. There are so many truths in this Bible that are for us to understand at a later time on a different day, probably in eternity. Now, there are some truths that are very clear in this Bible, and those truths are concerning salvation. And how God saves people. But when it comes to the eternal harmony, intimacy, and love shared in the fellowship of God between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we will never be able to understand that. We will never be able to grasp how from eternity on, 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelled in perfect love, harmony, and intimacy together. So since we cannot understand that fully, we are never going to be able to comprehend how, after eternally experiencing that fellowship in the Trinity, we will never comprehend how, beginning with the silence that Jesus hears from his Father three times in the Garden of Gethsemane concerning one of his prayers, and culminating on the cross in his death, we will never understand the excruciating physical and emotional pain that led Jesus to cry out, Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your face away from me? My God, my God. Why are you not there right now? We'll never understand that. He had always been, ex- he had always experienced the fellowship of his father, and now he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the good news is, even if we cannot understand the depths of what Jesus went through on that cross, starting in the garden, culminating in death. We can know this, that for him to cry that out, he was paying a very costly price for our redemption, for our reconciliation, for our salvation. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. We'll stop there for a moment. I'll tell you what, the way that you and I personally, can get through those seasons of our lives where we feel abandoned, where we feel forsaken, where we feel like God has left us alone. The way for us to get through those seasons of life is the same way that Jesus gets through that moment at this point on the cross, and that is by remembering the holiness of God and the fact that God is faithful to his people. Jesus recounts the holiness of God, that he is enthroned in the praises of his people. He inhabits their praises. And then he says, in you our fathers trusted. They cried out to you, you rescued them. And you did not allow them to be put to shame. When we go through these seasons of life that are excruciating, and that word means out of the cross, but with these very difficult times in life, when we go through them, the best thing we can do is to turn to our eyes to God, to his holiness, to his perfection, to his goodness, to his grace, to his mercy, and, and to his faithfulness throughout the ages to all of his people. And the only way we're going to do that is by honestly repeatedly reading this book 
so that we know who this God is. We know how this God acts. We know how this God is always faithful to his people. I'm putting a lot of plugs in for the word of God today, aren't I? Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Some people might read that and they might be really alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Even in his agony, Jesus really never lost sight of who he was. He realizes he had not, or he was not a worm, but he cries out, but I am a worm. In the eyes of those around him, he was. But Jesus knew who he was. He still understands who he is. Even in his agony, Jesus never lost sight of the fact that he was God, the eternal son. Jesus knew he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus knew all of that and much more about himself. Jesus knew, though, on a deeper level, what you and I need to know. And that is, the one who was hanging on the cross is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, for all things were created through him and for him. And he is the one before all things and in whom all things hold together. That's from Colossians chapter 1. But Jesus knew who he was on that cross. He had not lost sight of himself. Which means that we ought to focus on that thought a moment. The very fact that almighty God creator and sustainer of everything. The very fact that God incarnate in the body of man was mocked, bullied, spat upon, humiliated and nailed naked to a cross to die. That very truth to overcome us. It ought to drive us to our knees in awe and amazement every time we think about it and every day of our lives that he who is so great, so glorious, so powerful, so majestic would humble himself for our sakes so much so that he would be seen as and treated as a helpless, easily tread upon worm. Oh, the love of Jesus, I tell you. Why does Jesus humble him such, himself that way? 
Why does he humble himself to be seen as the lowliest of creatures? It's because we are told in Scripture, for our sake, for our sake, your sake, my sake, God made his own son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just the thought of the God of all eternity being humiliated and spat upon and nailed to a cross makes me so thankful and it just amazes me and just puts me in awe over all that Christ has done. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him from the delights, for he delights in him. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. Wow. Jesus, God eternal son. God incarnate in man. Became the object of scorn and ridicule and sarcasm and all sorts of what modern day people would call verbal and physical abuse. Yet, Jesus being the creator and sustainer of all life, he took it all. He took all of that abuse upon himself. We ought to be amazed by that. We ought to be overcome by that. We ought to be awestruck by that. With a simple word, Jesus from that cross could have looked at those bullies around him and spoken death. Yet, instead, he took it all upon himself. It's just, it's just so amazing what has happened. I mean, look at verse 9. Even in light of all the verbal and physical abuse, Jesus has confidence in God. He has not lost his confidence in God. He knows God was the one that took him from his mother's room. You know, he's the one. He knows that God is in control. Jesus never lost sight of who he was or what was going on. I mean, the fact that he knew his father was in control is how Jesus, before this moment in the Gospels can look at Pontius Pilate and he can tell Pilate, matter-of-factly, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. But yet that same Jesus submitted himself to death on a cross. He stood as a substitute for our sins. Verse 10, on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. 
Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a raven, ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Before we move on, I'm going to interject that not everybody believes that this is about Jesus. Those in the Jewish community, they look at this and in particular they look at verse 16 where it says, for dogs encompass me, a, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They look at that word pierced. And even in the bottom of like an ESV Bible, at the very bottom it's got this little footnote about that word pierced. That sometimes and often it can be translated as lion. So, those, one particular rabbi, in fact, that I was reading, he says that that verse should be translated more like this. For dogs have encompassed me. A company of evil doers have enclosed me like a lion. They're at my hands and my feet. Well, one of the things I've encouraged you to do, and I'll always encourage you to do, is to, to, is to read the Bible. But one of the truths that we ought to know about this Bible, or one of the points that I should make, is when we read this Bible, we ought to let this Bible translate itself wherever we can, interpret itself wherever we can. So one of the things I did is I thought, okay, that word pierced. Where else in the Old Testament is that word pierced used? And does lion fit there? Well, there are two other places in the Old Testament that I know that pierced is used. The first one is Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And then the second place in Scripture that I know is there is in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where we find the word pierced as well. And it says, And I, God, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, God is saying this, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Huh. I'm going to stick with pierced this morning. I'm going to stick with pierced because it fits so well with those other two passages. And another side note is roughly 200 years before Christ was born, 72 Jewish Bible translators got together and they took the Hebrew Bible and they translated in it into Greek. And you know what they did? They used pierce there too. Some people want to look at Psalm 22 and deny that it has anything to do with Jesus because it so shockingly does. I mean, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I've looked into what effects flogging had on the human body. I mean, anybody, I don't know, a million years ago, it seems like now, watched the Mel Gibson movie. You know, I've looked into the, what effects Roman flogging, that, that repeated beating of whips with, with bone and scraps of metal in their tips. I've looked into that to see what that effects that has in the body and what affects the driving of long thorns through the skull into the brain would have on the body. And, and I've looked into the effects of what crucifixion, the gruesomeness and the cruelty of it upon the body. If you've ever looked into that, then you know what we just read makes sense that the one on the cross, the central character of Psalm 22, that these prophetic words of Jesus, they make all sense things like the life being poured out, bones being out of joint, a heart melting like wax, and severe dehydration. It all makes sense. I mean, 700 years before, crucifixion of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote about the same event. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Hey, I'm sure we've seen in, mo in movies or on news reports people that have been severely beaten. They can't. They hardly even resemble us anymore. We need to remember Jesus subjected himself to such abuse for you and for me. Now in that psalm and what we just read, the hostile, angry crowd, that mob around Jesus, is, is considered to be like the strongest of bulls. I mean, Bashan had the best prairie, so the, the bulls ate the best grass there. They were the strongest. And to wild lions and, and wild oxen and wild dogs. Surrounding Jesus that day, the angry mob was controlled by unbridled, unrestrained, am animalistic lusts of their hearts. Lusts for power, for control, for blood. I mean, in one of the Gospels, we're told that, that those religious leaders envied Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. We should go home this week being that we're leading into Easter and we should read the accounts in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 about the crucifixion. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses to the event that day. They were there. Mark and Luke, they interviewed people. Mark probably interviewed Peter that was there, and they interviewed people, and they wrote the eyewitness accounts of what those people saw and what they heard. And if you read those eyewitness accounts of the crucifixion, you will be amazed by how many details 
surrounding the death of Jesus are in Psalm 22, a psalm that was written approximately 1,070 years before the death of Jesus and around 450 years before crucifixion was even invented. The Holy Spirit inspired King David to write Psalm 22 with prophetic, historic accuracy because the crucifixion of Jesus was premeditated, planned, and perfectly executed by God. And why did the Holy Spirit inspire David to write Psalm 22? And why did it play out in that way during Jesus' crucifixion? Well, at the end of John's Gospel account of the crucifixion, after he's done with the narrative of the crucifixion, he says this to us in chapter 19. He says, he who saw, he's referring to himself, he says, he who saw this crucifixion has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. God wants us to believe. The reason the Holy Spirit inspired Psalm 22 and why John and Matthew and Mark and Luke all recorded the details that they did is so we would believe. Believe what? Believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Believe that he was the one punished on that cross in our place. He stood as a substitute for our sins after living a perfectly righteous life that would be credited to our accounts. He wants us to believe that. He wants us to just lay, lay our pride aside and say, yes, I believe. I cannot save myself. Well, now that I've uh, pretty much used up all of our time and we're only done with the first 21 verses, we're going to start wrapping this up. We're going to start wrapping this up. The first 21 verses of Psalm 22 are a prophetic account of Jesus' humiliation and his death. And the remaining 10 verses we'll read in a moment, verses 22 through 31, they speak to what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished that day. Now, even though John is the only gospel writer who tells us Psalm 22 is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus, John is also the only one of the four gospel writers that do not that does not record Jesus' initial cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. But there is something found in John that's different that the other three don't have. And that's what more than likely was the final word of Jesus. Now, if you ever talk to a police detective... They'll tell you that if you start talking to witnesses and all of the witness accounts are identical with the information they're bringing forth, there's kind of a conspiracy going on. Because you know what? If something traumatic happened in here today, horrific, which I, I hope not, uh, if it were to happen and they started interviewing witnesses, every one of us would have a different remembrance of what happened.
happened, and, and we'd be focused on different details. Well, that's okay. That's one of the things that says those four Gospels are true because they, they share different details. Well, one detail that John shares that the other three don't is the final word or the near final word of Christ. And what is that word? At the end, right before he submits his spirit to the Father, right before his death, he, he, he cries out or he speaks, to Tetelestai. Tetelestai. In our translation, we'd say it is finished. Tetelestai is the cry of the herald when he runs into town saying the victory has been won. And Tetelestai was the cry of the banker when he says to the creditor, your debt has been paid in full. And Tetelestai is the word used by the worker who goes and tells his boss, the work you've given me is done. Now I guarantee you, probably tomorrow, JB is going to come walking in my office and say, Tetelestai. I just know how he works, right? Because the work's done that I've given him that day. And in today's world, the word Tetelestai would be the word used when the car dealer handed you the keys because it would be the word that would signify that the ownership of that car has been transferred into your name. And Tetelestai was the word that was written across the, prison, the prisoner's release papers. When he was released after serving his time, paying his debt to society, it, the word would be on there, Tetelestai, meaning he was a free man to go now. Tetelestai is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But what Tetelestai level events did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Verses 22 through 31 highlight just a few of them. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember the, and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn that he has done it. To tell us thy. I love that word. He has done it. 
we see pictures there. If you start reading Isaiah, if you start reading Ezekiel, you start reading Revelation, you'll see pictures of that great congregation, that cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 11 speaks of and 12 speaks of, that cloud of witnesses. We will see all of that. And that is what Jesus accomplished. He, he created the church. He created that congregation of those who will praise God forever. The cry of the forsaken changes in verse 22 to a chorus of praise and gratitude over what God has done, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him whom he has heard when he cried out. Dear church, to tell us thy the death and the resurrection of Jesus has accomplished much for us. Standing with that great congregation, let us too offer our praise and our worship to God. Let us too remember what the Lord has done, how he humbled himself for our sakes, giving himself as a sacrifice. Let us be amazed by God's premeditated, intentional, perfectly executed plan that has ransomed and rescued and reconciled and redeemed and has restored us to God through his son Jesus Christ. Because we too were once his enemy. We too were once standing in that angry mob I'll tell you what, I could preach for days on this, and those that know me really well know I could. But i got to wrap it up. How do we respond to this message? Well, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you can go out of here awestruck by what the Lord has done for you, the way that he, he died on that cross to bring Tetelestai to your life. And we can go tell others of that good news. And if you're not yet a believer, if you have listened to this sermon this morning and something inside of you is saying, there's some truth to that. If you're now starting to feel like you need to tell God that you are a sinner and, and you need to ask for his forgiveness, do it. Trust in the finished work of Christ. Trust in the fact that he was Put on that cross in our place and in your place. Confess your sin. Ask for his mercy and grace, and it will be given you. And if you don't know how to do that in a moment, uh, JB's coming up here and find me after service. Find me after service, and I'll help you walk through it. Let's pray. Father God, Almighty, eternal one. We are amazed and awestruck. We're just blown away by the fact that God the Son would become incarnate in the man Jesus. He would lay aside his glory. He would, he would set aside his power, his majesty and humble himself to the point of death on the cross. It just it blows us away. It just, it's just so amazing. We're, we're struck in awe that you would love us so much, Lord God Almighty, that Christ would die for us, that he would take the punishment in our place.
Help us to understand that truth. Help us to embrace that truth. Help us to share that truth. Because without you, we are just members of an angry crowd, dead in our sins. But with you, we have life. We thank you. We glorify your name. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.